Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Brene Brown says that our belonging to each other can't be lost, but it can be forgotten. Her research has reminded the world in recent years of the uncomfortable, life-giving link between vulnerability and courage. Now she's turning her attention to how we walked into the crisis of our life together and how we can move beyond it with strong backs, soft fronts, and wild hearts. I don't think when we're our best selves with each other, I don't think that's what's possible between people. I believe that's what's true between people. And I don't think we have to work to make it true between people. I think we just have to get the stuff out of the way that's stopping it from happening. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Brene Brown is a research professor at the University of Houston. She consults widely with corporate, military, and athletic leaders. And her TED Talks have come into millions of homes, as have her books, most recently, Dare to Lead. We spoke in 2018 when she just published Braving the Wilderness. One of the many reasons that your work reaches people is that you, the things you write about and do your research on, you're also completely open about how they are things you struggle with. And I think that, you know, often you, your your research is a way for you to, um, is, is this is a very special way you have to delve into the things that, that you're navigating and that, in fact, we are all navigating. Um, That's true. <laughs> you know, it turns out to be good for the rest of us. Um, and But so in, this, in, in your more recent writing, in your new book, um, Braving the Wilderness, you, you talk about your childhood and, you know, the, the dynamics were so completely different in the 1960s, even though it isn't that long ago. Plus, you had moved to New Orleans, which in 1969, the whole notion of racial belonging was... Oh. Uh, right at a, at a yeah. kind of, it's, you know, yet again at a new tumultuous stage. And, um, and also your parents' divorce and the not belonging in your family and how that, you know, one thing you say is that you, you do, you name that as a spiritual crisis. Um, and you said that not belonging in our families, and of course so many of this have just so many different permutations on this, you say is one of the most dangerous hurts. Yeah, I... I had never thought about it, really. I had never thought about the concept of not belonging, mm-hmm. even though I lived it. I never thought about the concept of not belonging at home as being such a universal experience of pain yeah. until, I don't know how long ago, maybe eight or nine years ago, I was doing some research and I was in a middle school and I was doing focus groups with middle schoolers. And I was asking these middle schoolers what the difference was, what they thought the difference was between fitting in and belonging. And they just had these like incredibly simple and profound answers. You know, fitting in is when you want to be a part of something. Belonging is when others want you. Mm -hmm. Um, They just just Mm -hmm. rattled one off after the other. And I was so taken aback. And then a young girl raised her hand and said, you know, miss, it's really hard not to fit in or belong at school, but not belonging at home is the worst. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. when she said that, 
probably half the kids either burst into tears or just put their heads down, like unable to speak. Other kids gave examples. You know, my parents were really athletic and popular. I'm not athletic. I'm not popular. I don't fit in with my family. I don't belong there. And just this thing washed over me of for a middle schooler, and yeah. and you know that age, no, yeah. for a middle schooler to say, hey, not belonging here is tough, but there's nothing worse than not belonging at home. Yeah. You understood. I felt the magnitude of it in my bones. You you make this um, just the way you 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 make this observation. I think the way you make it is so helpful. You said you know it's partly because we are neurobiologically hardwired for belonging, connection. We're hardwired to want it and need it so much that the first thing we do is sacrifice ourselves and who we are to achieve it. The irony, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, we're desperate for it. I think if you look at, if you look from a, the lens of neurobiology or even evolutionary biology, as a social species, to not be wanted and to not belong to the tribe or the clan or the group meant death. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we are wired for this. Mm-hmm. It is... Um, John Cacioppo on the University of Chicago, who does this incredible work on loneliness, says you know, that the only real biological advantage we have over most other species is our connection, our belonging, our ability to collaborate, plan, be in relationship with in special ways. And so that desperate need to belong is not a neurosis or it's not a ego-driven thing. That need to belong and be a part of something greater than us is who we are in our DNA. I love that also. In fact, the genius, the source of the genius of our species, right? I mean, that's the implication. That's of that. it. I mean, it is. Yet, what we do to ensure that we're accepted and fit in ensures that we have no sense of belonging. Yeah. So you use this language of true belonging. Mm-hmm. So talk about what are the qualities of true belonging as opposed to that those many things we do that feel like belonging, but as you say, are, are a hollow substitute for true belonging. What is that? Well, you know, when I started looking into belonging and I started really wanting to understand the bones of belonging, like what does it mean? What, how, do, how do we, like from a researcher's perspective um, and probably my own personal armor, um, <laughs> yeah. really, yeah. is what, yeah. what are the data here? Like what, what exactly is happening here? And I think the first thing that was surprising to me is that at the very heart of belonging is spirituality, mm-hmm. not religion, not dogma, but spirituality and a very important specific tenet of, of spirituality, which I believe cuts across faith and denomination and belief system. And by spirituality, I mean the deeply held belief that we're inextricably connected to each other by something greater than us. Mm -hmm. And that thing that is greater than us is rooted in love and compassion, that there's something bigger than us and that we are connected to each other in a way that cannot be severed. And so when I started to look at belonging, what I realized is that 
it is a spiritual practice, and it's the spiritual mm. practice of believing in ourselves and belonging to ourselves so fully that we find what's sacred in not only being a part of something, like our DNA calls us to be, but also we find sacred the need on occasion to stand alone in our values, in our beliefs, when we're called to do that as well. And so to me, this idea of true belonging is a type of belonging that never requires us to be inauthentic or change who we are, but a type of belonging that demands who we are, that we be who we are, even when we jeopardize connection with other people, even when we have to say, I disagree. That's not funny. No. I'm not on board. Right. So I think all the way through this thinking and writing you do, and especially as it continues to develop, you know, you use the word paradox a lot. I also overuse the word paradox. Um, but the thing is, like, that sounds like a, you know, can sound like an academic word, but in fact, it is just a description of the way life works. And the fact mm. that we are not, <laughs> like, we are not a combination of either ors. We are we are just this multitude of both ands, like, right at any given moment. Yes. So, So this thing... The spiritual practice of belonging is also being able to stand alone when called to do so. And then also like like the contrast of that with loneliness, which is this crisis, right? But that, that somehow mm-hmm. also to combat this crisis of loneliness, we have to learn the spiritual practice of being able to stand alone when we're called to do that as part of the, thing, the practice of belonging, yeah, I mean, it sounds so, you know, it's like I always think about the Latin like paradoxum, like the, the source of the word means seemingly absurd, mm-hmm. but really true. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. what we're both saying sounds like crazy. But I think our need to push away the word paradox and the need to our need for either or mm-hmm. not and is driven by our lack of capacity for vulnerability. It's really hard to straddle the tension of yes and. Yeah. It's really hard to straddle that yes, I want to belong, I want to be a part of something bigger than me and I'm willing to stand alone when I need to. Mm. And it's also hard to say, look, what if loneliness is driven often by changing who we are, being perfect, saying what we're supposed to say, doing what we're supposed to do? What if loneliness is driven in part by our lack of authenticity, that when I can go to a party and I can be the belle of the ball and come home completely disconnected, yeah. lonely, anxious, because never once during that experience was I myself. I was who I want. I thought they wanted me to be. Yeah. You know, and so I do think, I don't want it to be true, to be honest with you, Krista. Like, I think in some ways it kind of sucks that your level <laughs> of true belonging yeah. can never be greater than your willingness to be brave and stand by yourself. I kind of hate it a little bit. Yeah. But it's just what I found. It's just, it's how the men and women that have the highest levels of true belonging show up in their lives. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with social researcher and wise woman, Brene Brown. 
you, you know, you make these distinctions that I think are helpful between standing alone and lonesome and lonely, and that those are not all the same thing. I mean, everyone knows this. Like in my family, we call it the lonely feeling. Like we we named it so our kids could articulate it. Like yeah, I, really, feeling... I was going to ask you about that. That's so interesting. You like you're in your family, you'll say, "I've got that lonely feeling," or your kids will say, mm-hmm. "I had that lonely feeling." Yeah, and they'll say, mm-hmm. "You know, I was with a group of friends, and I had the lonely feeling." Mm-hmm. And I think we all know, everyone knows that experience of being surrounded by people and feeling completely alone. Yeah. <laughs> because I think you can be alone and with people because you're not connected to those people. There's no connection there. And so I love, again, Cacioppo's definition of loneliness as being on the outside looking in. When I stand up alone in the wilderness and take a stand on something I believe in or stand up for something I don't think is right or I do think is right, I feel connected to every other person who's made that pilgrimage through the wilderness. People I know, people I don't know but admire. Um, I don't feel lonely. So let's talk about how, again, we're in this deep territory of paradox, how what you're describing is the opposite of the standoffs that we have on every side of every, you know, Mm. across the spectrum of our culture right now. It's like standing up for what we believe in as a way of moving behind our defenses. Um, mm-hmm. So so I think one way, a good way to get into that is, you know, you have done this research on the elements of belonging, true belonging, when that's really happening. And so the first, the first element is people are hard to hate, close up, move in. So, that, so, so again, what you're talking about is not the stance of moving through the world being solitary and righteous, self-righteous. No. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that we've seen and, you know, I write about this in this chapter called High Lonesome, which is like my favorite tradition in bluegrass is High Lonesome. It's mm. kind of Bill Monroe and this kind of wailing and, and sorrow captured in music. And I, I talk about this High Lonesome culture that we're living in right now where we are the most sorted that we've ever been in terms of most of us no longer even hang out with people yeah. that disagree with us politically or ideologically. No, we so don't. We're sorting. S-O-R-T. Sorting. Sorted. Yes, yeah, sorted. As opposed to sorted. Exactly. Yes, ID. We might be pretty sorted right now, too. So I just wanted to. Yeah, no, we've sorted ourselves into. Yes, we've sorted ourselves into kind of ideological bunkers. Mm -hmm. And what's so crazy is how that kind of social demographic changing of sorting into these ideological bunkers tracks exactly with increasing rates of loneliness. Yeah. And so I would argue that, and this goes back to your paradox, um, nine times out of 10, the only thing I have in common with the people behind those bunkers is that we all hate the same people. And having shared hatred of the same people or the same, I call it common enemy intimacy. Yeah, right. That's such a good phrase. Yeah. Like our our, our connection is just an intimacy created by hating the same people Mm -hmm. is absolutely not sustainable. It's counterfeit connection. So it's not not true belonging. Oh, God, it's not true belonging. It's hustling Mm -hmm. of the worst magnitude. I mean, it's just hustling. 
And so my question was for the men and women who really carried this sense of true belonging in their hearts, they didn't negotiate it with the world. They carried it internally. They brought belonging wherever they went because of their because of their strength and their spiritual practice around it. What did they have in common? And so this first practice of true belonging is, you know, people are hard to hate, close up, move in. Like when you are really struggling with someone and it's someone you're supposed to hate because of ideology or belief, move in, get curious, get closer, ask questions, try to connect, remind yourself of that spiritual belief of inextricable connection. How am I connected to you in a way that is bigger and more primal than our politics? Actually, I think the real spiritual, or at least hand in hand with that, the spiritual practice you're pointing at is reclaiming our belonging, our human belonging, and having a courage to stand alone in our own groups to transcend that the kind of tribal politics. Is that fair? Yes, that's exactly right. So that we defy this sorting. So we just say yeah. we're not going to live this way. You know, I've probably been in front of, let me think realistically, 25,000 people um, since this book came out on a book tour across the United States. And every time I ask audiences, raise your hand if you deeply love someone whose vote in 2016 you find incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. And 99% of hands go up. Yeah. And we have to find a way. Like, you know, then I ask, how many of you are willing to sever permanently your relationship with the person you love because of their vote? Um, and maybe one or two hands goes up. I'm not. I'm personally not yeah. willing to do that. Now, I'm not going to tolerate abuse or I'm not going to tolerate dehumanizing language. I'm not going to have a curious and open dialogue with someone whose politics insists on diminishing my humanity. Those are lines that were very clear with the research participants. But short of that, I'm going to lean in and I'm going to stay curious. After a short break, more with Brene Brown. Listen to this show and everything we do on Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. To learn more, subscribe to their newsletter, Possibilities, and discover the work Templeton supports on topics from curiosity and kindness to evolution, black holes, and the origins of life. Sign up at templeton.org forward slash possibilities. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with social researcher Brene Brown, a wise thinker and writer and a sought-out teacher by leaders in many fields. She's turning her attention ever more to how we walked into the crisis of our life together and how we can move beyond it. 
Our belonging to one another across every social divide, she says, can never be lost, but it can be forgotten. This conversation was my second with Brene. We spoke once before in 2012 when her research and TED Talks on shame and vulnerability had gone viral. You know, Brene, I was... um, I was looking at the transcript of our conversation, you know, I quoted something at you that you said that feeling vulnerable, imperfect, and afraid is human. It's when we lose our capacity to hold space for these struggles that we become dangerous. And I feel like we have continued to walk into that to an extreme that, I mean, you know, when I say I'm not surprised, I'm dismayed, heartbroken, right? But we could have seen this coming. I mean, you, I want to read what you said then, too, because it's more true now. You said, I'm hoping it's not wishful thinking, but I think we're sick of being afraid, and I think there's a growing silent majority of people who are really kind of thinking at a very basic human level, I don't want to spend my days like this. I don't want to spend every ounce of energy I have ducking and weaving. I don't know where we'll go next, but I really believe with every fiber of my professional and personal self that we won't move forward without some honest conversations about who we are when we're in fear and what we're capable of doing to each other when we're afraid. Let me tell you something. When people are in fear and in uncertainty, and we live in a culture that has no capacity for the vulnerable conversations that have to come around that fear. Right. For actually facing the fear, right? For actually facing it. That's right. pain... And the right. fear show themselves as pain and fear. That's right. If that fear is sitting there waiting yeah. to be spoken to somehow. If it's burrowed, metastasized, mm-hmm. then it can be leveraged. Mm-hmm. Now you hold fear in front of you and you say, we're fearful. We're in so much uncertainty. There's so much change at such a rapid rate. If you hold fear in front of you, it doesn't dictate your behavior. Um, But I think because we've lost our capacity for pain and discomfort, we have transformed that pain into hatred and blame. It's like it's so much easier for people to cause pain than it is for them to feel their own pain. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, you talk about that, that it it takes courage to, to allow yourself to feel pain. It's not a comfortable option. I mean, the other thing I think is that we we reward outrage, and we don't reward or create spaces where it would be actually trustworthy or reasonable to invite people to show their fear and their pain, just as that, right? That vulnerability. It's funny, because I think that's changing, you know, one of the things I'm super curious about, um, can I just interview you now? I've got a lot of questions for you, Krista. <laughs> I'll, I'm gonna, I'll, I do have I'll a lot of questions for track. you. I'll keep this on track. All right. <laughs> okay. So here's my question for you. So the one place I see this shifting is more and more in the corporate sector. Mm. Right now with the Me Too movement and this reckoning we're having around sexual violence and sexual harassment and assault of women. We see, again, the corporate sector taking really firm, hard stands on this, while we see zero movement in the government and politicians. Yeah. And we see corporate sector really questioning 
their tolerance for the bombastic, raging, you know, shut people down, speak at, not to, it's unusual. I guess for me, I wonder what's happening. Can you tell me what's happening? <laughs> um, uh, no, I'm gonna, well, I'll just say a little and then I'm going to turn it back to you. No, so I, I agree with you that I think there's a generational shift altogether. And ironically, workplaces and corporate sphere is more sensitive to that. Like it's bubbling up and having an effect, whereas our political life is just such a in such a tangle. So like that one place, unfortunately, that one place is where we look to see where leadership is and what's important and what's powerful. But like, mm, I feel like if we can just good. buckle our seatbelts, like this is a 20-year process, right? So like, I mm-hmm. do think it's coming up in all kinds of places. And it's mm-hmm. real. I agree with you. Like you said, this it's the silent majority, the growing silent majority of people, I think that is still there. I think it's stronger than it was two years ago. But somehow we have this thing, this this metastasized thing, you know, right? That we have to somehow, it has to work its way through our system. All right. So we're going to move on from me. Um, but, but like, so, so the second element of belonging from your research, again, feels like a contradiction, but it's exactly what we need now. It's just like you say, speak truth. And I'm going to, because this is public radio, I'm going to say it here, but then we'll, I'm going to say, speak truth to bullshit, speak truth to BS and be civil. Which also, like, we're going to have to come up with a whole new understanding of what civility is. I always use, like, words like muscular and adventurous. Like, how do you, what is this civility we have to develop which will let in pain and fear and true belonging? So I really wrestled with that. As I started looking and doing a research review and trying to understand what civility was, I mean, I came across this definition from a nonprofit based in Houston, the Institute for Civility and Government, that civility is claiming and caring for one's identity, needs and beliefs without degrading someone else's in the process. Mm. I mean, it it goes Mm -hmm. on for another like 10 Mm -hmm. lines, Mm -hmm. but if we could just get that part, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think we'd have it nailed. So claiming and caring for my identity and my needs and my beliefs without degrading yours. And I feel like you're like the third um, leg of these these four elements of belonging, strong back, soft front, wild heart, kind of starts to get at what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that to me, um, I first heard the, the saying strong back, soft front from Joan Halifax, who's yeah. a Buddhist teacher. And it spoke to me at the time, and I thought, I don't know what that is, but it sounds, of course, paradoxical, and I don't like it um, <laughs> because it sounds hard. I'd rather have a strong front and a strong back and a strong everything. Um, our deepest human need is to be seen by other people, to really be seen and known by someone else. And if we're so armored up, and we walk through the world with an armored front. Yeah. We can't be seen. And so I think when you go back to speaking truth to BS and being civil, it requires that strong back, but it requires that soft front that isn't, okay, am I crazy or do I remember reading in your book something that said, 
one of the greatest acts of courage is to be vulnerable with someone with whom we disagree. Yeah, that's from Francis Kissling. Yeah. But from your book, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where I read it. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking when I read it, boy, now that's a measure of courage right there. Mm-hmm. And the wild heart for me goes back to the wilderness that I'm not afraid of the wilderness. I'm not afraid of that space where I share an opinion and I look around and I'm just surrounded by, you know, the wilderness. I don't see anybody standing next to me or behind me. It's just my opinion and it's my belief and it's me. That that wild heart, I love that language. And that reminds me of something that you you actually said when when we spoke last time. And it's funny because I... I think of this as a poem. It's five lines. (laughs) It's like most of us are brave and afraid at exactly the same time all day long. And you talk about the wild heart is at one and the same time, tough and tender and brave and afraid, all at the same time. Yeah, it is. That's, I mean, that's, that's literally, if I raise my kids to have that wild heart, that can be, you know, grit and grace, tough and tender, excited and scared, you know, that can hold the tension of those things. That's all I can ask. And I'm sure this question comes up in as you're out there in the world talking to people. You, you know, you are saying we have, we have to be brave. We have to be adventurous. But it's not about making yourself unsafe, like everybody is not called to have a soft heart in every situation. You know what I'm saying? Like I struggle with this and this question comes up because there are people who are on front lines of danger. So how do you like talk about like how, where those boundaries are and how to think about that distinction? Yeah, I mean, I think there are some real cultural issues. I think mm-hmm. one of the greatest casualties of trauma is the loss of the ability to be vulnerable. And so when we define trauma as, you know, oppression, sexism, racism, I, I have no choice but to leave my house with my armor on right. and carry the 20 tons of that through my day, no matter how crippling it is, no matter how heavy it is, because I am not physically safe yeah. in a world or this environment. I mean, that's why I, you know, when I work with teachers, I tell them all the time, you may be creating the only space in a child's life where he or she can walk in, hang up their backpack, and hang up their armor. Mm-hmm. Only for the hour or two hours this child is with you can they literally take that off. And one of the things I talk about all the time when I'm working with leaders, I mean, I've, I, every, you know, from CEOs to special forces troops, I always ask the same question, most recently NFL teams. Give me an example of courage that you've seen in your life or that you yourself have engaged in, any act of bravery that was not completely defined by vulnerability. No one has to this day, even special forces. I mean, even when Navy (laughs) SEALs can't tell you, then no one can tell you. Like, Mm -hmm. because the problem is there is no courage without vulnerability. But we're all taught to be brave. And then we're all warned growing up to not be vulnerable. Yeah, right. And so that's the rub. 
And so when you have bravery without vulnerability, that's when you get what we're looking at today. Mm. All bluster, all posturing, no real courage. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with social researcher and wise woman, Brene Brown. I just recently did a conversation with two people, including... um, Whitney Kimball Coe, who's part of something called the National Rural Assembly, which I had never heard of before. And it's this um, composed of a lot of people who are, they call themselves homecomers. I mean, it's, it's people in our towns and, you know, rural areas it, all over the country that are, you know, very simplistically put on the losing side of globalization's equations and on the losing side of um, a lot of what's happened so quickly in this early century. And I, we got this email, and I was so I was moved by it, and I thought, oh, I can bring this to Brene. <laughs> um, so here's Yikes. what she said, because it really it's like so it kind of brings this down to earth. What we're talking about here, you yeah. Know, she said, I just listened to the episode, and for someone living in a small western town, it was a lifesaver. I would really love to hear something that is focused directly on how to cope with fear. Um. She said, especially for progressives living in small, rural, conservative-leaning towns with very little ethnic diversity, there can be a pervading sense of fear, both for ethnic minorities and for progressive activists. In addition, as a writer, I receive my fair share of troll attacks on Twitter. And while this isn't uncommon, I struggle a great deal with carrying fear while trying to continue doing my work. I, I want to say I want I want you to respond to that, and I also want to say you're you're very careful, and I appreciate this to to say that you know this kind of there's fear on every side of our of our cultural equation. So so this happens to be a progressive. So how would you? This feels to me like such an important question, right? That line between just staying safe and being courageous. Yeah, I mean, I think that. I think there is fear on every side. And I think we are our very worst selves in fear. We are the Mm -hmm. most dangerous to ourselves and to each other, and even to the people we love and we're in fear. And so when you have a situation where you've got, you're in a small town, you're either an ethnic minority, you're a progressive, um, or, you know, whoever you are, there's got to, here's the thing that I thought was so important, that while the inextricable connection between human beings cannot be severed, it can be forgotten. And we need moments of collective joy, and we need moments and experiences of collective pain. We need to find ways to come together in those moments. Hmm. And when I asked the men and women in the in that we researched that who the participants for the research, what are the limits of moving close to people that you disagree with? 
the two big pieces were physical safety and dehumanization. And to not understand that that's a truth for people is privilege. Uh I mean, here's the thing. This is my bet, Krista. This is maybe in two years we'll be talking again. Yeah. Um, Okay. We'll pull the transcript and we'll say, Um, We're making a note right now. (laughs) Yeah, make a note right now. Yeah. He or she who chooses comfort over courage and facilitating real conversations in towns and cities and synagogues and areas who need it. When you choose your own comfort over trying to bring people together and you're a leader, either a civic leader or a faith leader, your days of relevance are numbered. Okay. I like really, it. Really? Yeah. And truly. Yeah. And I think this is a good um, way to to come into that fourth pillar of true belonging from your research to like bring this really close to the ground, which is also where it happens, right? I mean, with, mm-hmm. among humans, probably in physical spaces, um, hold hands with strangers. There's a period in there. Hold hands with strangers. Talk about what what that is. Yeah, it's about the research participants who had the highest levels of true belonging sought out experiences of collective joy and collective pain. Um, Durkheim, the French sociologist, called this experience collective effervescence. And interestingly, he was trying to understand kind of the voodoo magic that he believed happened in churches. Mm. Like, what is this thing that <laughs> where where people seem transcendent, they're connected, they're kind of moving in unison, there's a cadence and song and rhythm. And he tried to understand what it was. And what he realized is, and that's what he named collective effervescence, mm. it's the coming together and shared emotion. And we have that today. We have opportunity. Like, like trust me, I'm from Houston. I know. I, I was going to say, I mean, you've just gone through one of those experiences where this rises up in a way I've no one would have wished for. Yeah, two. Yeah, I've gone through two. So I've gone through Harvey, mm-hmm. which, you know, there we are, six feet of water in our street. Um, we're one of only four houses left on our street. Everything else has been torn down since Harvey. Everyone lost everything. Um you have the, you know, the Cajun Navy, which is 400 fishermen and women coming from Louisiana and, you know, swamp boats and jet skis and fishing boats, pulling people out of houses. Never once during this tragedy, which is still unfolding here in Houston, will be in pain for a long time around yeah, it. Yeah. But never once did someone say, hey, I'm here to help. Who did you vote for? <laughs> um, that just didn't happen. We just reached out and it was collective. Yeah. It was collective pain. It was collective struggle. But we saw hope in each other's eyes and stories. And then you fast forward, you know, to baseball season. And we've had this incredible experience of collective joy with the Astros winning the World Series. (laughs) That's what you mean. All right. (laughs) Yes. It was was really... It was, you know, I could give just a short story. Like I'm at the, the last game, playoff game against the Yankees. Uh, I'm standing, I'm with another couple, me and Steve, and I, you know, the game of inches, as they say, watching every pitch, watching every batter. I cannot take my eyes off. I'm a big sports person, so I am glued. And it's like 
the second to last batter. And I stick my hand and, you know, I shove my hand down in my husband's back pocket. And I'm like kind of holding on to his rear, you know, like ready. And the guy next to me goes, excuse me, ma'am. And it wasn't even my husband. Uh, he had got up to go to the bathroom. And when he came back, he stood at the end of the aisle. And um, but this guy was like, but uh, go Astros. Um, and it was just this. When else are you singing with strangers, hugging strangers, high-fiving people around you? Like, um, again, the connection between people is not, you can't sever it, but you can forget it. So to find moments of collective joy and pain and to lean in those, into those with strangers reminds us of that something bigger. And... Trust is another subject you've done a lot of research on and been talking about. And, you know, like it seems to me that in order for that, those moments also to to continue, to be, to, to start to restitch us as a people, to restitch us together or help us remember that, mm-hmm. that our belonging to each other. Um, I don't know. It just feels like that's a big one for us because so much... There have been so many hateful things said. And again, like if everybody, even if everybody wasn't saying them, they've landed all across the spectrum of us. That's so beautifully put. It's true. No matter, you know, who said them, they've landed on us, haven't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. My goal was just try to understand kind of what is the anatomy or the elements of trust? What is What are we talking about behaviorally when we talk about whether we trust someone or not? And so... When I think trust has fallen apart on a cultural level, it's like one of the conversations we're having right now about, again, the sexual harassment, sexual violence Mm -hmm. reckoning and the Me Too movement. Um, And everyone's like complaining about the lack of legitimacy and and the apologies. Well, we're so far away from apology time. Yeah. Like we haven't even acknowledged what the hurt is. We haven't even acknowledged the pain that it's caused people. And so to build trust again, we have to think about those elements. How and where do we start building boundaries again? And boundaries is like a big gauzy word, but it's a really simple thing. Mm -hmm. What's okay and what's not okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's it. Here's what's okay. Here's what's not okay. That's really helpful. That's really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's reestablishing trust. Isn't I mean, like, yes, of course, it has an emotional, cerebral level. But you're talking like, it's these really practical steps towards that. It's super practical. Mm -hmm. If if you don't acknowledge the pain that you've caused specifically, and you don't make amends for it, there's no apology. Hmm, That's really you know yeah. So it's very specific behavioral things. There's going to be no hallmark movie of regrown trust in this culture. In right. Our, in Where our everybody country. hugs and it's done. Yeah, no. Right. There'll be no hugging. Well there may let's let's there may be hugging. There and there probably will be the Hallmark movie, but still. <laughs> yes. It won't be the yes. whole story. Um so so I meant to bring your book into the studio with me and I, 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 I forgot, but there I there was a part of it where um you you were you were interviewing somebody who who you're drawing out on these things you're learning about how we do all this stuff and you say one of my worst defenses when i get anxious or fearful in conflict is to put people on the stand i break into vicious lawyer mode and depose people rather than listening uh, you know it's terrible yeah. and it always ends badly but it's how i get to being right and there was another one this is one i was going to read where you 
you talked about how you realize that when you're sitting with somebody having these hard encounters, you're just thinking ahead to what you're going to say next. Mm-hmm. And then when people do that to you, you hate it. So talk about some of the like really practical things you know, I mean, about how to, how to like ratchet that back and like regain, sort of be, your, be the people we want to be in those moments. Yeah, I think you're talking about an interview that I did with Michelle Buck, who teaches at Kellogg, um, mm-hmm. the School of Business at Northwestern, and she was she teaches. I love the name of this. It doesn't. It's not conflict resolution. It's conflict yeah, transformation. Yeah, yeah, which I think is mm-hmm. great. And so she, I asked her very specifically for the practical tips because I needed them yeah. for the holidays. Um, <laughs> right. But I, you know, I think the practical to me, the biggest takeaway for me in this book and it actually changed how I parent my kids as well, is we've got to stop walking through the world looking for confirmation that we do not belong because we will always find it. Hmm. It's the confirmation bias. You will, If you're looking for confirmation you don't belong, you're going to find it. We don't negotiate our belonging externally. It's not something that we negotiate with other people or groups of people. It's not we somebody else it. can give you. It's not somebody Yeah, no one can give it this. Mm-hmm. We carry this in our heart. Um, and so the most tangible behaviors that I have found, stay curious, be kind. And as Harriet Lerner has taught me, listen with the exact same amount of passion that you want to be heard. Hmm. You know, I, I just, I'm, I'm going to keep chewing on this, what you said when we first started talking about how our capacity for belonging, not just our desire, but our capacity is, is like is the genius of our species lies in that. And um, yeah. so that's the large context of what we're talking about and also about what we're talking about, like hopefully is unfolding in generational time, if not in election cycle time. Um, I want to ask you, like, in, you know, so let me say this. I was thinking about this. You know, I love, I, you know, when you talk about how we need to find points of connection and joy, even mm-hmm. with strangers, especially with strangers mm-hmm. right now. I was thinking about how Dorothy Day, I love this, you know, this mm-hmm. picture of her with the San Francisco earthquake. She's eight years old, I think watching people coming over in boats from Oakland and like she as as a child like she sees that everybody around her all these adults know how to take care of strangers they knew how to do this all along mm-hmm. and then her question was why can't we live this way all the time i know and i feel like what you're doing with your research in in a very practical way is like kind of shining a light on like what it would take like the actually, the actually that we have it in us, and kind of breaking that down, right? I mean, talking about the anatomy of trust, or um, these yeah. these very practical tools of behavior and how we are with each other. And so, I know you're out there having that conversation with that longing that is so alive. So, I just want to ask you, like, as we close, you know, what right now? And this may be very different this week from what it was last week. Like, you know, right now, what what makes you despair? And and where where are you finding your hope? I think my despair is, you know that movie, I don't remember what movie it was, where the line was, I can see dead people. 
Oh, uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, what I is forget it? the name. Somebody's of... like somebody knows it behind the glass. What is it, Chris? The sixth sense. Yes. So, like, I think my despair is I can see fear in people. Like, I think that's mm. kind of maybe a gift from my work and maybe a curse. I don't know, but I think my despair is people still opt for causing pain rather than feeling it. Yeah. Um. And that is, that's just hard for me to see because I can see it. I, I just don't see the blustery, confident person. I see the scared to death person holding on in a very desperate way that's causing people pain. So I think that's mm-hmm. hard. The hope is that when I think about Harvey and I think about the Dorothy Day thing, the, the quote, um, I don't think when we're our best selves with each other. I don't think that's what's possible between people. I believe that's what's true between people. Mm. And I don't think we have to work to make it true between people. I think we just have to get the stuff out of the way that's stopping it from happening. Brene Brown is a research professor at the University of Houston, where she holds the Huffington Foundation Brene Brown Endowed Chair at the Graduate College of Social Work. Her books include The Gifts of Imperfection, Braving the Wilderness, and most recently, Dare to Lead. The On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Marie Sambalay, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Aaron Kalasako, Kristen Lin, Prophet Adewu, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Siri Grassley, Nicole Finn, Colleen Chuck, and Christiane Wartell. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent production of the On Being Project. It's distributed to public radio stations by PRX. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind, learn about cutting-edge research on the science of generosity, gratitude, and purpose at templeton.org discoveries, the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality, supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at calliopeia.org. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.